A lot of peace being passed. I like it. Now, um, a few years ago, I coined, uh, I coined a term, and um, uh, the term that I coined, at least I, I think I did, um, was five-second moments. Um, things that you think of, the crazy things that go through your mind, that you never will act on them. And if you do, like, it, it might mean the end of your life. Do you guys have these five seconds, like, right? Like, all of a sudden, something pops in your mind, and you're like, if I do this right now, it's not even like me to do it, but it's just crazy, right? Um, so one time, Bob Costas uh, was speaking at our uh, McKendry campus, and I had a five-second moment, completely random, makes no sense. But I thought, if I stand up right now and just, and just start shouting out obscenities, which is not like me and not a part of my character... Like, I will literally end every piece of my ministry and every piece, like, but that thought goes through your mind. Weird, right? You guys, do you guys have these thoughts ever? Okay. Well, <laughs> the problem is every once in a while I act on them. Okay. And um, so we were on an Ecuador trip a couple of years ago, and I had a five-second moment. And um, unfortunately, I acted on it. Here, here, was, here was my five-second moment. You know what would be really awesome is if we had a competition where all of the people on this Ecuador trip were put on a bracket, and then we um, voted on who would be the most likely to survive in the jungle if they were pitted up against each other. That was the five-second moment. And without thinking anymore, I just stood up. I was like, guys, I got the best idea ever. We're going to put all of your names on a sheet of paper and then vote which one of you will survive against the other. And um, I hadn't thought all that through. I didn't realize what would happen. Um, But inevitably, you have... You have people going against each other, and the question is, which one of them will survive, right? Like, which one has the tactics in the jungle? Uh, which one has the wherewithal? Who, who has the, the knowledge to get it done? And, um, and so uh, I was personally really excited because I made it out of the first round, all right? I, I'm no Boy Scout, okay? I, I, I don't know how to tie a Boy Scout knot. Um, I, I don't even uh, know how to build a campfire without... Uh, gas and flame, like I, I'm just, I'm not gifted, but I don't know whether it was grace on me or, I actually had a pretty strong first round opponent, but they voted me in, man, so I was pretty excited. Um, Pastor Lonnie, Pastor Lonnie, you in here right now? Pastor Lonnie, I think, made it to the championship or the final four. Where are you at? Lonnie, you in here? See me? Okay, he, he's, oh, he's in Elmo Kids tonight. Uh, Pastor Lonnie, like everyone was thinking, he used to be a police chief, like surely he can figure this out. Um, but the winner of this time, after much debate, uh, some tears were shed. Um, people were getting pretty fired up. The winner was Luke Nuremberger. And for those of you guys that know, know Luke Nuremberger, uh, he's a guy in our community here that literally takes tree climbing classes, okay? And um, he's a mix between like Tarzan and those of you guys that know him, like he kind of looks like Tarzan. A mix between Tarzan and uh, like Rocky and Rocky IV. Like somewhere in between there, uh, he, that's where he is. Um, now, uh, this is also, while we're speaking about survival, an age where, where zombies are talked about a lot. <laughs> You're like, where are we going with this? Hold on, hold on. Um, I know many of you guys watch uh, The Walking Dead. I know, for whatever reason, zombies are really a, an intrigue. So I was over at my friend's house, and uh, I'm not going to mention any names, um, but he's one of the five guys up here. And... Um, <laughs> and and I, he, we were, like, hanging out in his basement, and all of a sudden, I, I found myself in this corner of his house. And, uh, and I was like, what in the world is all this? And I started looking at all these things, and there were, like, cans of food. And there were two huge blue drums of water. 
And I'm like, you know, like, like ultimately what I'm thinking is in case of zombie apocalypse, like this guy is, he's ready to go. Obviously a zombie apocalypse could never happen, but at the end of the world or whatever, Y2K, this guy was prepping, I thought in my mind, right? And so I, I go around, I'm like, dude, what is the corner of, of like judgment over here doing? You know, like what, what's, and he's like, listen, if, if everything goes downhill, like me and my family will survive for six months. And, and I start looking at this and then I ask him and he said, they sell these kits at Sam's. Are you guys aware of this? You can go to Sam's and say, I'd like to buy a survival kit. And the little Sam's make, you know, little, like they'll, they'll take you over and they'll be like, all right, here you go. For like 20000 and your first child, you can survive the end of the world, right? Or whatever the case may be. Um, <laughs> if you were to just be honest with yourself, uh, how many of you feel like you have tremendous survival tactics? Right, raise a hand. Okay, how many of you guys feel like we're doing really good as a community here? Um, <laughs> let's, let's all pray that we're not locked together, okay? Uh, <laughs> there's like six people that raised their hand. We're in a world of hurt. <laughs> well, here's what's happening, okay? In case you're just joining us, um, the Israelites have just seen one of the most miraculous things ever. Uh, they've seen the sea literally part right in front of their eyes, and not just that, they walked right through it. Crazy, crazy. And then they get on the other side of the sea after watching all the Egyptians die as God closes the water over Pharaoh's army. They bust out into this worship song. Moses was leading, and somehow 1.5 or so million Israelites, man, woman, and child, sing. They worship. They praise God. They, they recognize that, that they now have stood victorious. Well, what's on the other side of uh, the sea is wilderness, is desert, is dry land. And so from here on out, what we're going to be watching these Israelites do is seeing if and how they'll survive. Uh, what will they communicate? What will they struggle with? What will they enjoy? What will this massive road trip with a whole ton of people look like? So, um, listen, I, I just, I want to pray so much tonight on my heart and my mind. Um, how will the Israelites survive in the desert is our question. Let's pray, and then, then we're just going to watch God do his thing tonight. All right, let's go. Come on. Uh, Father, I ask right now uh, for your glory and namesake that you would teach us from your scripture, that you would draw our hearts in, and that not one single person here, God, would leave unchanged. In your great and holy name, amen. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. Uh, only a few verses tonight that we'll study all the way from 15.22 to verse uh, 27. So let's start here, Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. I'm stopping already. You're like, it's, it's going to be a long night. Well, listen. All of these people on the other side of the bank, they've just sung a beautiful chorus, a cappella, with some tambourines. You remember all the girls with tambourines, right? They've just sung out this song. And then Moses turns away from the sea, and he points. And everyone looks, and I, I think probably for the first time realizes what's on the other side, or rather what he's pointing to. Outside of those who literally could not physically see, 
Everyone else is looking to dry land, granular sand in massive proportion. And and I'm guessing that some of them are thinking, listen, why don't we just stay here? I'm sure the fish are good. All of our enemy is dead. We could set up camp right here by this oasis and live and survive and begin a new life here outside of our slavery from Egypt. But God was sending them to Canaan. And so Moses turns around and he says, we have to keep moving. Uh, Last week we talked so much about what it means to praise God, to give God the victory, to stand in victory ourselves. But the thing about victory is we have a tendency to get addicted to the celebration of the victory that we forget that God is still saying, okay, You've remembered, you've celebrated, you stand in victory again because of me, and now you must keep going. In other words, God is always moving. We're not sure at times the pace, um, much to differ from our own desires, especially in terms of pace, but, but God is saying, listen, it's time to go. We can't stay here forever. I'm taking you somewhere else. Victory is awesome in Christ. And then God says, let's keep going. And they went, the scripture says, into the wilderness of Shur, which I find kind of hilarious. It's kind of a wordplay, right? The wilderness of Shur. Uh, That doesn't sound so sure at all, right? Let's show you a picture here. This is the wilderness of Shur. First, this gives us a picture of what some people surmise as where they crossed. And you'll see there up in the top uh, middle, it says the wilderness of Shur. Next slide. So this is what Moses is pointing to. Right, taken from Google, which kind of shows green and brown. I mean, we got we got a whole lot of brown here. Okay, so that's where Moses pointing to, and where they're going to head in today's story is that green line all the way up to Marah, which is about estimated a three days journey. So this is where they're headed. Verse twenty two says they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness, and the scripture says they what. They found no water. Uh, now, I've done as much research as I can here. You guys have seen enough Discovery Channel to understand the premise. Um, people say you can uh, go about three weeks or so without food. Um, many of us challenge that and uh, show that we can't go about 30 minutes without food, right? Um, but water is uh, much less. Again, many of us, especially in our love of particular kinds of soda, um, particularly those who are really uh, in love with Diet Coke. Any other Diet Coke fans here? Okay, that's right, aspartame. And um, in like 20 years, we'll all realize how bad aspartame was for us all. Anyway, um, three days or so without water is, is a life and death situation. They find nothing. For us to understand the gravity of the story, you have to imagine this. You're a mom, you're a dad, you got kids. And not just do you have kids, but you have herds. Like you brought some cattle, you have some things with you here. You're trying to provide for your family. And you're trying to do your best to go along with the masses, literally. But you start wondering after about a day of no water, if you're going to be able to live. And you listen, you start looking at your kids who are walking endlessly for three days to the destination that we just showed you. And as a mom or dad, aren't you starting to get a bit concerned, right? There's no Capri Suns around. Like, there's nothing, you know? 
a parent without a Capri Sun is like whatever the analogy would go, right? Um, like you would start getting really worried. You, you'd, you'd wonder if your family was going to live. Um, dads who are very protective of your kids you, and your wife, you'd start looking around saying, listen, I don't know that we can do this. Aren't you sure that we shouldn't turn around? There's no water for three days. And when they came, verse 23, to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Um, imagine this scene. Three days. People are starting literally to hallucinate. Okay? There is a desperate tone amongst the masses. And then they finally see water up ahead. Can you imagine it now? All of those people who are in the front of the, of the pack, they start sprinting. And all of a sudden, there is this tremendous amount of hope, right? Like three days of no water. Uh, some of you guys who have run a long race before, a marathon, okay? I kind of ran a 13.1. Uh, a I want one of the stickers on, on the back of my car that says 0.0. I always thought that would be kind of funny, right? I'm, I'm not a runner. But one time I tried, 13.1. At the end of that journey, okay, and, and it was a very long journey, um, I didn't end with the rest of the pack, let's just put it that way. Um, I was parched. I mean, I would do anything uh, to get a glass of water, but unfortunately there was only a Diet Coke there, and so I indulged. But either way, <laughs> either way, like, have you ever been so thirsty before that you could not think of anything else? So imagine all these people, the people in the back are starting to wonder what's going on, because they, they see people starting to sprint, and they see moms carrying their children and they, you know, they see dads like running with their herds because these herds are a semblance of life and of food and sustenance. And then they get to the water and the bitter taste hits their lips and they instantly spit it out. And so the people that thought they had finally been, uh, the thirst had finally been quenched, all of the people behind them are watching these in front of them spit the water out. Imagine the hope and then the complete despair that these people had to be feeling. Well, the scripture says the water was bitter. I'm not sure if you've ever had bitter water, and the best way to describe it was, would probably be a really intense, um, a rusty kind of water. If you've ever had like a mixture between, uh, have you ever had like egg-smelling water? If you added like that with some rust and a cricket in there or something, like that's probably what it tasted like, okay? Um, they're spitting it out. They're desperate. They don't know what to do. Therefore, the scripture says it was named Marah, which literally means uh, bitter. Verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? We're going to hang here a whole bunch. There's two responses to this. The first is, what in the world are they thinking? They have just seen the seas part. Like, what are they thinking? Grumbling, the word says, to Moses, not even to God, to Moses, about there not being water. What kind of problem, issues, pride, area? Like, what are they struggling with in their heart that they've already, three days after a singing in jubilee and victory, they've already forgotten what God has done? And so now, 
The grumble, the murmur, the what's this, the let's go back to Egypt. That's one way of looking at it. The other way is, I'm surprised they lasted three days. How long do you last? I start thinking about you and I, and you and I's grumbling and murmuring, and I start to get kind of jealous and envious of the three days that they spend not grumbling and murmuring. Anyone else? I've never seen that perspective before, never even thought about it. All of a sudden, I'm like, three days, that doesn't seem too bad. We begin to grumble, we begin to complain, we begin to point fingers after half an hour, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a day after not getting our way or being fed by the pleasures of our flesh. Now, I'm not certainly condoning their behavior at all, and I believe their behavior, especially uh, with the connotation of grumbling, is in error and an obvious lack of faith. I'm just trying to point out to you that before you point the finger at the Israelites to say, what about the Red Sea? God is performing miracles in and around your life every day. And we forget so quickly that the murmuring and the grumbling begins to happen and arise. Have you ever been around a grumbler? Have you ever been around a person that like all the time they just have something incredibly negative to say? Where like every tone that they have is like, are you serious? Like, do, do you have anything better to do with your time than to again to complain about the silliest of things? It's contagious. And so I imagine some people who are even maybe in their hearts believing that God would provide, the grumbling starts to work its way back. Listen, that is why we are so in this body anti-gossip. Gossip and grumbling and murmuring is so insanely infectious, isn't it? Like you come into a conversation with a pure motive and a good heart, and you leave that conversation thinking horribly about the person that was just being battered. And you're like, how in the world did that just happen? Because you found solace and community in the grumbling. There is power in group grumbling. And if you've never experienced before, please show us the way. Write the book. Call up the own network, right? Like you'll be on immediately. Okay. The women in this room get that, and I'm unfortunately confessing to say that I do as well. Um, right? Now, I want to talk survival. Because that's the issue at hand in this verse. They want to survive. And so they're saying, where and what are we going to drink? Listen, uh, I've got a wife and three kids, okay? Someone comes into my house, and they present a present danger to my family. I would imagine that my heart will start racing. And I would imagine that um, the kind hopefully generally gracious and loving Mark turns into something else. I wonder in those moments what turn the other cheek looks like because I'm really telling you that if someone presents a danger to my wife and my children, I will get into survival mode. And all of a sudden these two arms will become like spider arms, right? And I... Every... Every once in a while, I'll, like, I'll, I'll, I'll put a hammer by our bed. <laughs> and Heidi's like, what are you going to do with that? And I'm like, 
just my weapon of choice, you know? <laughs> I mean, if things go down, this hammer is going to fly, you know? <laughs> Seriously, it's a true story. Um, let's look at it in another way. Um, let's look at it another way. Uh, have you ever been um, in a holding your breath contest underneath the water before? Or has someone ever held you underneath water thinking they were joking, but they didn't realize that you barely had enough air anyway? Listen, imagine that moment right now. Isn't there something inside of you that just like wants to explode? And you'll do anything to push off the bottom. It's survival. It's survival mode for us. All of us in, in certain situations, we just go into we must survive. And so all of these things in the flesh are reactions that you and I have to life hanging in the balance. The problem is the survival of the flesh and the survival of the spirit are very, very different. The modes that we go into to protect our family from physical harm or the thing that we'll do so that we don't drown are very, very different than the things that the scriptures so quickly, easily, clearly portray in the scripture on how and what we must do to survive, for lack of a better term, in the spirit of God. The survival, spiritual side of our life. And in this moment, the Israelites have forgotten that. They're only looking at the flesh. They're only thinking about the things right in front of them. And what they could be doing instead of crying to Moses is get on their face before the God who promised to redeem them, who promised to take them to a land, who told Abraham way back when, I've got you guys, you're my people for my own possession. They could have got on their face, forsaking the flesh, and pleaded to the Lord, and cried to the Lord, and fists clenched on that desert floor, God, please provide us something to drink. Would there have been any error in that? Would there have been anything wrong for a desperate people who are worried about their children crying out to God? But who do they cry out to? Moses. The one person that in their heart, they're already thinking, it's 1-800-YO-FAULT. The thing back there with the staff in the water, that was cool, but now what you got? The reason why I love this story so much in these short verses is we continue to see the power of a loving, gracious God. Please see this in verse 25. And he cried, did Moses to the Lord. The word cried there in the Hebrew means cried. Pleaded. I don't picture Moses' posture, folded hands over the dining room table. I picture a man who lifts up his cloak so that his knees can hit the ground. And I picture a man saying, God, we have a bunch of people who are absolutely desperate for sustenance. God, what are you going to do? And he did, Moses, cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a what? A log. 
No problem, Moses. Here's a log. Right. Listen, listen, listen. Please hear this. I know sometimes in your life, and maybe right now for many of you, you feel like the glass has completely fallen off the table. And if you're not in it now, you've experienced it at some point. You felt and sensed everything is gone, everything is worthless, everything is shattered, my life is broken, I have no hope, there's nothing to do, and you're looking at the shattered glass. And when God in this moment shows Moses a log, God shows again that he is in the restoring, fulfilling promise business. The problem is we don't know which piece of glass he's going to pick up first. We don't know when and we don't know how. The promise is he will. He will restore He will be God. He will get glory in the restoration, but we don't know how. And so in this case, God says, hey, Moses, here's a log. And Moses in his heart could be like, I didn't ask for a log. I asked for agua, you know? God, I know you can speak Spanish. Give me some agua. Right. Listen, have you done that? Have you told the Lord in your perfect timeline a log? God, you don't even know what I need. And God's like, I'm beginning to pick up the glass. The problem is you want me right now in this moment to pick up this piece, but I maybe have something different. Watch me work. I will heal this. I will restore this. I'll bring this together. I have conversation after conversation with person, with people who want to press the accelerator on God's healing process. And I understand. But I'm just saying, if God is going to heal and restore, then God, pick up the glass in your time. And I will sit and I will wait for you. God's like, here's a log, Moses. And he threw it into the water, did Moses. Why would that be an instant reaction? Um, He's a man. And men love to throw things in the water. (laughs) Right? Listen, I take my two boys. I haven't trained them in this. Not discipled them once in throwing things into the water. Right? We get next to a lake. What do they do? All of a sudden, everything just starts throwing in the water. We go to a park in Newtown, like this nice, pristine, you know, park in Newtown. I'm over there looking at my boys. They're like literally depleting all of the landscaping rocks that are now killing these little fish that are, you know. I'm like, boys, what are you doing? We're just throwing stuff, man, you know. <laughs> it's interesting enough to think then that when Moses throws this log into the water, how much water has been an image for the journey of these Israelites? Do you remember the first plague? What was it? Remember? Water into blood. And certainly you remember where we're just coming from, a parted sea. And now all of a sudden they can't find water and Moses throws a log into it. And what does the scripture say? And the water became sweet. Now here's what's hilarious. If you spend time, a lot of time studying these things, you hear a lot of theories and philosophies. And I've shared a lot of these with you as we've journeyed through Exodus. (laughs) I was reading a guy who said, well, um, the way the bark would have mixed with the minerals, it would have changed the consistency of the bitterness to make it sweet 
for 1.5 million people with one log, you know? It's like, what in the world? Like, how can you even put that in literature and feel good about that, you know? And then I look at myself. At the improbable things that God does, and I still try to rationalize. I still try to come up with the equation in my head that would make it all make sense instead of just accepting that it doesn't, and that's great. I think uh, we believers, in fear that the world will need an explanation for us outside of just God, we try to craft all kinds of answers instead of just saying, that's my God. How did God, how did, like, how did this happen? And we're like, well, and then this, and then this piece, and then you would have never believed. My God. <laughs> Moses throws a log in the, in the water, and all of a sudden this water turns from bitter to sweet for all of these people to drink. If there's one image that you want to get in your mind, it's right now. Come on. Imagine that scene. Hundreds of thousands of people insanely thirsty and now ravenous. Right? And I picture like Moses throwing the, throwing the log in and just kind of like stepping back in fear for his life. You know? And that was pretty awesome. I'm just going to hang back here. You know? These people are so thirsty. Listen, and as a community of people, they get to drink. Imagine the smiles, the high fives, the Hebrew high fives, right? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord shored him a log. And then at the end of verse 25, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there the scripture says, he what? What's the word? He tested them. We see this word tested all throughout the Old Testament. God is putting their faith, their trust, on the scale of what will and who will you believe. Saying, verse 26, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do which is right in whose eyes? In his eyes, anybody? Come on. Listen, let's stop talking about what's right in our eyes. Let's start talking about what's right in his. Let's, start, let's stop coming up with theories that justify our, all of our ideologies. And let's start just banking in what's right in his eyes, what God's word says. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. This is what God says. Is this strange to anyone else? Does this sound like a threat to anyone? If you do all of these things and then... I will do this in response to that. And those of you who are in mathematics, you're like, this is an equation. At least it seems. It's like God saying, you must do these things. And then in response to those things, I will do or not do these things. But look at how this verse ends. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. And then how does he end? For I am the Lord. And what does he say? Your healer. Come on. He says, your healer. 
the possession there isn't just the healer, which certainly would count and be right and true. He says, your healer. So if you listen, heed, submit, I will not do to you what, you, what I did to the Egyptians. Because all of the things that I'm going to be pointing to you will show you how to survive in me. I've brought you out to the desert to show you that you don't need the things that you had in Egypt. You need me. I've brought you all the way out here. I've parted the sea. I've made water now bitter to sweet so that you would know again. You do not need anything else. You need me. And when I speak commandments and give statutes and direct your life, I'm trying to show you the best way to live. And for those of you guys that have stepped out of obeying the Lord, you know that there are consequences to sin. You know what happens. Let's think of it in paternal terms, right? When we were all kids, teenagers, middle school even better, we start thinking that the world revolves around us and that we have all the knowledge of the kingdom of our own world, right? And our parents start to push down and add curfews and say this or that. What do we start doing? Do you really think that's the best? Like, heck no, that's not the right way. to. And we start doing things our own way, and inevitably what happens we find ourselves coming home past curfew, mom and dad on the couch. This didn't happen in my life. This is an imaginary friend of mine. And my parents, my parents think, what are you doing? Oh, I was going down Thrill Hill in my 92 Pontiac Sunfire, this big massive hill in a his fictional city that I might have lived in at like 80 miles per hour. Listen, have you ever done something where it's like, what in the world was I doing? I met up with all these seniors in high school. I just got my license. I'm going down this insanely steep hill, 80 miles an hour in my car, bottoming it out, getting out afterwards and giving people high fives. Like at the bottom, like, you know, I have to like correct so I don't like roll my car. And then I come in after curfew. My parents are like, what have you been doing? Oh, you know, just almost dying, you know. My parents are like, listen to us. We're trying to help guide your life here and show you the best way to live, I don't, I don't see this as an equation. I see this as God saying, I want to bless you. I am your healer. There is no other healer. So for that, I feel like we need to wrestle with three specific areas that I think we try to find healing in. Um, all of us, in many regards in our life, turn to comfort for healing. And I just want to ask you guys, what have you learned from that? Does your comfort provide you any healing? I'm talking healing. I'm not saying like momentary sustenance or a pat on the back, a rub on the shoulder. I'm not talking about that. Our comforts will, listen, will never provide the healing that is only reserved for the Lord. And I'm not just talking about the massive gaping wounds that we have in our life from past hurts. I'm saying just the, the little things in our life that show up in our insecurity. The little moments where someone says something and it really affects our heart. And it, it doesn't seem like a huge big deal, but we, we think about it for a couple hours. 
We can't function. We're not working at work. We're not studying in school. Like we, we literally consumes us. And so what we think is, well, maybe food will help. Or maybe this opportunity to look at pornography will help. Or maybe this person over here will help. And listen, what I prayed before tonight is that the cliches that I will say tonight, that I will believe more than ever before. Those things will never provide, ever. Every one of my turn to comforts will never provide healing. God was trying to show the Israelites, listen, water at the end of the day will not heal you. Only I will. Believe in that. Or the second thing is your pleasures. Have your pleasures ever provided you healing? How much time have you spent pursuing your pleasures, looking for healing? And I'm talking about pleasures in all forms and fashions. Time and time again, haven't they come up short? And yet, what do we do? We get on the other side of the sea, we forget what God has done in our life, and we turn to silly things, trying to provide what only God can Have you ever wondered how beautiful it would be if finally your whole entire life wasn't seeking the pursuit of your own pleasure, but was submitting to the Lord's will so that you could really exist in joy? Our pleasures never, ever provide us with anything. And lastly, and maybe most significantly, our righteousness. You sin, and what do some of us turn to? Making up for it. Come on. Okay, okay, so maybe, I know that I say all the time that we're saved by grace through faith, and it's not by my works, and my works are as filthy rags, like I, I, we know all the texts maybe, but then we screw up big time. And because it worked with our spouse or our kids, we think somehow that God is looking down and looking at all of the ways that we're making up for it. Man! You know, it's almost, I'm almost glad you did that sinning back there. Because you serve like 65 homeless people in one hour. Right. And you love this person and you shared the gospel over here. You wrote a book in the afternoon. Right. You and Max Licato sat down and just cranked it out. Right. And, and we think somehow in our minds that God is up. Yup. And for those of you guys that have never existed in that, you're lying. Come on. Our righteousness will not Heal us. Christ's righteousness already did. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. What God sees in us is the power of Christ, period. These Israelites weren't now to leave and say, okay, God, we're going to make it up for you. Now we're really, really, really going to walk in you. And then because, of, no. What God needs to see is, listen, trust me. Trust that I'm enough. Trust that I'll sustain. Trust that I'll provide. Trust that even at your moment of life is hanging in the balance that I'll swoop in and be God. I am the Lord, your healer. And verse 27 is insanely beautiful to me. Then they came to Elim, where there were, look at this, 12 springs of water and count them 70 palm trees. Moses calls the intern. Hey, dude, you mind uh, counting the palm trees real quick? <laughs> they 
like show up to Cancun all of a sudden in the middle of Egypt. You know what I'm saying? Like all these people who have just seen water go from bitter to sweet walk and they're like, you know, they're like sitting in the resort chairs. This oasis. I've tried to do as much geographical. This is probably a, a picture of this place. Literally in the middle of the desert with all of a sudden 12 springs and 70 palm trees just chilling at an oasis. Well, what is God doing? Like, did he have to do this? No, they could have went another three days, and he could have taught them another lesson. What does God do? In his grace, in his mercy, not in response to the people's lack of belief, in his grace and mercy. He says, here, look at this. Isn't this awesome? I'm going to bring you again to a place and show you that I love you and that you're my people and I'm your God. And we're going to just enjoy the bounty of these 12 springs. Can you imagine the scene? Like, you know, like families like skipping around the palm trees, right? Coconuts, which probably weren't there, falling, right? It's beautiful. A whole group of people being tested on what they believe. Listen, uh, I'm going to say some things right now. Do we believe that God's word is survival? Are you and I existing in a place in our life that is evident that God's word is 100% necessary to our survival? Would your life say that? Would your mouth say that? Would your heart believe that? That you need his truth, the guidance of his spirit in your life, more than you need anything else. And I'm not talking about a check it off list. I'm not talking about a things to read so that you feel better. I'm just saying, do you see the words of life given us to, in God's word as a means to survival? What people say about you right now, without God's word, that dude, that lady is nothing. They wake up, they're, they're ravenous. Because they exist in a culture and in a world with so much lie and truth feeds them so mightily. And the only truth that can ever be affirmed is the truth that comes in God's word. What I'm fearful of is the very thing that can feed us the most we aren't feeding from at all. And so then you have to wonder, what is the world seeing that we're surviving by. Let's talk about them. Worship gatherings. That's how those people survive. Lot families are small groups. That's how those people survive. Discipling relationships. That's how those people survive. Christian paraphernalia. Christianese language. That's how those people survive. Turning to their comforts. That's how those people survive. Listen. 
in our hearts, what if there was a renewed sense that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God? And I, I shared it earlier. All these things that we're talking about right now have become so cliche, and I've prayed it and I'll pray it again. God, help me believe them now more than ever. Jesus was having a conversation uh, with the woman at the well. And here's what he told her. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. If your comfort is your pleasure, if your healing means is your righteousness, if you're trying to find your pursuits and your comfort, listen, you're going to be thirsty again. Jesus promises it. You will be thirsty. It will not quench. You're going to be, it won't give you anything. Droplets of hope that ultimately won't be sustained. And here's what Jesus says. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. Only water that comes from him, nothing else. The water that I will give him will become in him a well, a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, look at this, sir, what is it, what is, what does she say? Come on. Sir, give me this water. Anybody else? That's what I'm feeling tonight. Give me this water. I picture a group of people all surrounding all of a sudden this massive well, or in this case, a spring, or a water that's been, a log has been thrown into, and just in a ravenous way saying, give me this water. Now listen. When Jesus was restoring Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, do you remember what Jesus told Peter? Three times he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And when Peter said yes, do you guys know what Jesus says? What does he say? Feed my what? Feed my sheep. Well, why does Jesus say feed my sheep? And what is he implying is going to feed them, right? Jesus is saying, you go and you tell people what I have said. Because what I have said is true. You feed them. You don't feed them with self-righteousness. You don't feed them with the pleasures of the flesh. You don't feed them with coddling Christian sessions. You feed them with my word. Only my word is true. And then Peter, what happens to him? Anyone know? The boy gets crucified upside down. Why? Because he fed people God's word. No compromise. He stood on God's word, believed that it was true, and he himself was drinking from the well. And so he believed it. And that, at the end of the day, is my biggest concern. If you're drinking from the well of God's word, then you know yourself that nothing else provides. Resting in God's character, being poured over the truth of the scripture, understanding the depths of his love deeper and deeper and deeper. So all of you, because you're very practical, right? And rightfully so. All right, so Mark, what do I do with this? Mark, where's the Bible reading plan handout? Mark, what, what do we do? I believe tonight it just begins with, God, give me this water. God, grow my love for your scripture. Help me believe that I do not need anything else except you. God, give me this water. God, help me believe it. God, weed out all of the doubt in my mind. 
even when my fleshly survival hangs in the balance, help me believe that all I need is you. Let's stand together. The fruit of repentance, the fruit of these things from tonight will be a community that is surrounded by the truth of God. And Holy Spirit's residing in us that all of a sudden we're all witnessing more and more faith and strength in the Spirit of God because we're being bombarded by the truth. We must have God's Word because it is true. And yet we're feeding from so many other things that all it's doing is stirring lies in our hearts. Do you believe that you need God's Word to survive? We need to pray for help. Amen? So, Father, um, I just stand as a convicted man, a man who confesses to you right now that, that I have often lived as though I can figure it out on my own or that culture will provide me something or that I don't need you or your word to sustain me. I pray tonight, God, that you will give us the water. That you'll quench the thirst that our palates feel. That you will turn any bitterness that we have towards you and remind us again of how sweet your truth really is. Cut us with conviction. Stir our hearts to repentance. And God, give us a ravenous craving to feast from your truth. I believe you can do it, and I believe that these aren't just prayers. I believe you can change this whole body, this whole culture, to truly know and live like we won't survive. We won't live without you, God.